Thank you to JR and the worship team. Someone had asked me, kind of, what's our strategy for worship right now? Well, we, ha- we are blessed to have a number of people in our church that are able to lead worship. And uh, so we will have a rotation of leaders, so to speak. And, uh, and, and, and uh, those, those leaders will then organize the teams, and, and uh, we will be able to um, work together in that way. But we are really blessed there are a lot of churches who would not be able to do that, and uh, God has blessed us with some very good leaders, and that's, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, as many of you know, we have a four-year-old and an eight-year-old at home. Four is a fun time. Kinsey is our daughter who is four years old. Four is a fun time because they say the cutest things. How many of you uh, uh, keep track of my wife's Facebook there are a number of you, and you raise your hand very, my wife loves to put comments on there, and uh, they say, the, they pick up on these little phrases. Here are a couple of Kinsey's favorites as of late. I never gonna wow. <laughs> that is a typical Kinsey, I, I, I for crying out loud, and uh, she will walk around, and whenever I do something silly, Daddy, I, 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 for crying out loud. And we know what that means, right? Shugo is up here and he says, this was a difficult week. And I'll be honest, I say the same thing. It's been one of those I, 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 for crying out loud type weeks. It's been one of, it's been one of, it's been a hard week. And, uh, Kids are homesick, felt very busy and spread pretty thin, and uh, just a lot of stuff going on. And I wish I could say, hey, I just took it all in stride, and, uh, and everything went well. But unfortunately, there have been times where I look back and I think, I was not the loving father and husband that I wanted to be. And I didn't handle uh, all of the stresses and the difficulties exactly the way I would hope to handle them. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I preached a sermon on Christ-like gentleness, remember? And I, and I admitted at that time, there was times where I did not act like a, with Christ-like gentleness. And unfortunately, I have to say the same thing again. And in the midst of all of this, it can be discouraging to, to think, well, when will I ever get it? Will I ever actually uh, live with Christ-like gentleness? Will it, will it ever actually sink in? And it's hard, and at times, to be honest, you almost want to just throw in the towel. But this morning, rather than throwing in the towel, we'll throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus And we'll ask that by His uh, grace and His Holy Spirit and in His Word that He might continue to transform us to be the people that uh, He wants us to be. This morning we start a new sermon series on the book of Ruth. Ruth is a great little book uh, buried in the front part of the Old Testament. A book of only four chapters. And we've entitled this series, Ruth, Christ-like Gentleness. You see, the reason I want to turn to Ruth is partly for my own sake. This is an area that I want to grow in, to become more like Christ. 
especially in just this area of kindness and generosity, in the area of gentleness. And so we're going to spend the next couple months looking at the book of Ruth. Ruth is a wonderful book, as I said, but it sits in a period of time in which it was one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. It sits between Judges and 1 Samuel. And if you go back and read Judges and 1 Samuel, these are times where people were living in sin and rebellion and it looked like there was a lot of darkness in the land. And here is Ruth, just as a glimmer of light in the midst of all of this darkness. One author says this about Ruth, and I read this because I think this is right in the direction that we want to go in this sermon series. Barry Webb writes, Ruth, and this is actually the opening line of his book, Ruth is a gentle book. But if kindness is its theme, it is kindness of, ra- of a radical and controversial sort. A kindness that makes ripples. And that's the type of person that I want to be. That's the type of church that we want to be. We want to have gentleness and kindness. The kind of kindness that makes a difference in this world. The kind of kindness that comes out even when we have one of those I-I-I type weeks. Because believe me, when we have those kind of weeks, kindness does not oftentimes flow out very naturally. And so this is a kindness that makes ripples, a kindness uh, that makes a difference in our world. The opening uh, verses of Ruth introduce us to some of the main characters here and kind of helps us to understand the setting in which this story takes place. Ruth 1, 1 and 2 says... In the days when judges ruled, and we're going to talk about what that means, but that's pointing towards a specific time, and it's not a pretty picture. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And, you, and even as we begin to uh, read this, I, I think it's not explicitly said, saying that, it doesn't explicitly say this, but I think the implication here is there's rebellion in the land, and there's and there is a famine because of it. That this is, this is the Lord's hand. There is famine in the land. It's one of those type of weeks, so to speak. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was, El- was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Milan and Kilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So here are some of the main characters. Elimelech, his, his time in this book is going to be short, but it opens with him. His, his name literally means, my God is king. He's husband to Naomi and a father to these two men, Milan and Kilion. And he lives in the land of Judah. As we know, if we've been in church, Judah is considered to be God's land. 
This was the promised land that was given to the people of Israel. And the Israelites were God's people. And this is where he lives. And, uh, and as he lives there, he is living, the assumption is made, to represent his name. That he is living as a man who is following the Lord God as his king. Now, historically, as I said, this takes place in one of the worst periods of biblical history. The Israelites, God's people in the Old Testament, are living in rebellion and immorality. We get a picture, a, a, a synopsis of this in J Judges 17.6. In those days, speaking of the day when the, when the judges ruled, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. And that is a bad thing. There is no morality. There's no right and wrong. Everyone is just living as they want to live. And now when Ruth picks up, this is a seminal moment for Elimelech. He's got tough decisions to make. You can almost imagine him uh, agonizing over what he is to do. Let's just pretend Elimelech is here in his office, and he's sitting at his chair, wrestling with the Lord's decision. What is it that he would, what would it be that God would have him to do? And I can imagine him just there, and his hand is in his hair, and he wonders, should I stay or should I go? And, he's, and he uh, wrestles with all of these things. Judah is his home country. This is the land of his fathers. This is where all of his uh, family is. But it is clearly not a good place. There is immorality in the land and there is no food for his family. And he sits there at his desk and he agonizes over what he is to do. And you can imagine him pulling out a piece of paper in his desk and he begins to make a pros and a cons list. There are pros for leaving and there are cons for leaving. On the cons side, we've already touched on some of the answers. On the cons side, this is the land of his family. This is where all of his relatives are. Surely he would not want to leave them. And also on the cons side, this is the land of his God. The, uh, God is king. That's what his uh, that's what his name means. And so surely he would not want to leave this land. And also there is always, whenever we make decisions like this, there is familiarity. I always, I'm terrible when I spell on marker boards because for some reason it gets doubly hard. I'm sorry, I, I feel like I've already messed this up. I don't know why it becomes so hard whenever I write on a marker board. Um, okay, that's the cons list. And it's significant. Why would he leave? But there might be some pros as well. The, obvious, the first obvious pro is there is food for his family. There's a famine in Israel. And he needs to provide. He's got a wife and two kids. There is also the idea that one day he would like his sons to marry. 
And not just to marry anyone, but to marry good, godly women. And it seems that this might actually be hard to find if he is here in Judah. The people are not living for the Lord. There is immorality that reigns all over the place. He wants uh, godly wives for his children. And then I wonder, as he sits at his desk, if there is an idea that he feels like he is a stranger in his own land. He is a stranger in his own land. Sure, he is, this is the land of his forefathers, but he does not feel like he fits in. In fact, as he is there, his sense is if, if he's going to live for the Lord, it is more difficult here than if he were to move away. And this is the first point that I want to make about kindness that makes ripples. As Christians, we live as strangers in this world. Kindness is hard because the world in which we uh, live is not conducive for it. And I wonder if we wrestle with uh, kindness at times because we don't quite fit in. And when we feel like we are on, on the outside, it is harder to, to really put forth the kindness and the generosity that we would long to. Hebrews 13, 14 says, For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking for a home that is yet to come. As Christians, we, this world, we don't fit into this world. It's like we're alien and strangers in our own land. And I wonder how many of us can relate to this. Maybe you are the only Christian in your family. And even among your, your kin, your, your brothers and your sisters, your, even, your, even among your parents, you feel like you are a stranger in your own family because of the faith that has taken root in your heart. Or maybe at your workplace. Maybe you are one of the few Christians uh, at your workplace or at your school or among your friends. And the deepest part of you is the part of you that people have the hardest time understanding. And you recognize that you are a stranger in this world. Every week as I sit down uh, in, my, in my prayer chair uh, to pray for the members of our church, I am mindful that I am praying for many people who do not come with their spouse on Sunday because they are married to someone who is not a believer. And for some of you, this breaks your heart that your husband or your wife would come to faith in Jesus. Several months ago, I sat down with a woman who prays diligently every day that her husband and her kids would come to know Christ. And I shared with her from 1 Peter 3 where it talks about how husbands will be won over to the faith by the purity and reverence of their wives who have a gentle and quiet spirit. And those words are significant, but they are hard. We can live as strangers even among our own family. 1 Peter 3 says, If any of them who do not believe, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives 
when they see the purity and reverence of your lives, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. We're talking about a Christ-like gentleness. But that's hard. That's hard when we live as strangers in our own family, so to speak. 1 Peter 2 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day he visits. Sojourners, those that are just passing through. When I was in high school, I was one of the very few Christians in my, uh, in my high school. And I remember that was hard. But it was my desire that some of my friends would see my good deeds and glorify God. And there were a few that became Christians. But I am always sensitive to, to uh, students and young people today who go to school and there are pressures on all sides. And we can say the same from in so many different contexts. In fact, in 2019, we almost live in the dis- period that is described in the Bible as the day of the judges, where everyone did as he or she saw fit. There is a lack of morality, at least the type of morality that we would see described in the Bible, and we can feel like strangers in the land. And so what are we to do? Are we to be like a Limelech and say, okay, I'm out of here. I'm going to go live somewhere else. Or do we plant our roots deep and say, no, I'm going to stay. And I'm going to try to be a witness in the midst of this strange world that I live in. And I would say yes to both of those questions. First of all, Jesus tells us to be in the world, but not of the world. How are we ever to win someone to the Lord if we are not actually have relationships with those that, we are, that are unbelievers? And obviously, I don't think God would call us to abandon our family, no matter where they stand in the faith. And yet, there is a place to retreat. There is a time to retreat. And that place is called the church. You see, as a a church, we call each other brothers and sisters, right? Because this is a spiritual family. God wants us to be active in the world, but at the same time, we need to come together. If we don't, we will be worn out and we will never become kind people. We'll just be beat down until we say, forget it all, and walk away. We come together to encourage one another and to build one another up and to pray for one another. Peter and the disciples recognized uh, that they had left everything, and Jesus looks at them and says, he sees that many are leaving, and he says, do you want to do the same? He realizes that, hey, this is a difficult world and you have left a lot to come and follow me. And he asks them, do you disciples want to turn around and go home as well? And Peter uh, spoke up and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that is us as well. We live as strangers in this world. 
And at times there is a temptation to give up and say, forget it, I'd rather just go and do my own thing. It's harder to be a Christian than it is to not. And yet we come together and we say, where else are we really going to go? We have found life in Jesus' name and there is nowhere else we would rather go. It is in Jesus alone that our hearts are filled with the kind of love and gentleness that we long for. And so we plant our roots deep, and at the same time we retreat. We say, I want to be a witness for Jesus, and at the same time I'm going to come together with my Christian family, and we're going to encourage each other in the, uh, in the, uh, in the Word and in the Spirit so that we can be, as Peter said, so that uh, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day that He visits So the first point about ripples uh, that lead to kindness, that make kindness, is that we as Christians live as strangers in this land. The second couple points come in the verses that follow. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. So here is one of our main characters already. And uh, he has passed away. They married Moabite women. That's where they moved to, to Moab. And they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about uh, 10 years, both Milan and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where they had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. When Naomi, then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud. And she said to her, and said to her, We will not or we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Let's imagine the scene again. The day starts off as any other. Elimelech woke up in the morning and he and Naomi would sit together at the breakfast table and eat their breakfast. The normal diet of that day and the uh, for breakfast would have been probably some like toasted wheat and barley and some fresh fri- figs and other fruit grown in the region. And they're eating there together. And you can imagine that these are special times together. This is an uh, opportunity for them to connect with one another. They live busy lives in Moab. 
They had planned on staying there only a short period of time, and now they've been there for 10 years. And as they uh, sit there and enjoy breakfast for one, with one another, I imagine that they also take time to pray for their day. You see, even though they had left the land of their forefathers, they had never left the religion of their forefathers. And so they, so they bow their heads at the breakfast table and they pray for their sons. And they're thankful to God that God has provided them with good, kind women to be their wives. Kilian had married Opa. She's a smart, serious woman who is wise in her dealings. Milan had married Ruth, a woman whose name means friendship. And she indeed was a good friend. She was kind and generous. She was a godly woman who was loyal to her family. And as Elimelech and Naomi sat at the breakfast table, they would oftentimes reflect with fond memories the day when they were able to see their sons marry good, kind women. And after a good breakfast and strengthened by morning prayers, Elimelech kissed Naomi uh, goodbye and left as she did as he did every morning he had found good work in Moab and had made a living for himself and was able to provide for his family and now I wish the text gave a little bit more detail but all we know is that Elimelech died and it seems that this man of God and his wife were quite uh, close and again, we just speculate. Maybe it was an accident at work. Maybe it was a sudden heart attack. Maybe it was a senseless crime. No matter what, Naomi is devastated. You pick up on this in the words of the text that her heart is broken. She has lost the love of her life, her husband. And then tragedy upon tragedies, her two sons are dead. And again, you wish we knew uh, some details. Did it happen on the same day? Were they together? We don't know any of those things, but Naomi is left without her husband and without her sons. And that is terrible. There is emotional grief in there. And we also have to understand in context, there is financial stress in this. From the day in which she lived to be without her husband, she would be dependent upon her sons. And without sons, she was really without hope. The next morning would come and there's this idea of that it would be more enjoyable just to spend the day in bed. Have any of you felt like that after the loss of a loved one? The breakfast table used to be a special place to share breakfast with her husband and now it is a place of grief. And then it is a grief over her sons and then it is anxiety over how she will provide for herself and then she remembers I've got two daughters-in-law and these are not just off to the side she in the text it, she refers to them as her own daughters these are close these are people that are close to her and there is anxiety how will they make it they have been nothing but kind and they don't deserve this kind of tragedy and so in the in the midst of these moments of grief and anxiety she makes up her mind it almost sounds like a split decision i'm going to go back to Ju uh, to judah and there my relatives will be and somehow i'll find a way 
she gathers Orpah and she gathers Ruth and says, we're going to pack our bags, we're on our way. And then partway through the trip, she realizes, what am I doing? These two uh, young women could obviously do better in Moab than they could in Judah. They're not Judahites. They are Moabites. And so she pleads with them, go home that you may find a husband of your own. And as they wrestle with this decision, decision, Oprah, Oprah, oh, Oprah, oh man, now I'm really messing it up. Orpah says, forget it. I'm, uh, you know what? You're right. That makes more sense. And uh, I am going to go home and be with my, uh, I'm going to go home and try to find a husband. You know what? This just came to mind. I actually did see an uh, interview with Oprah one time. And uh, she is named after this woman, and her parents got the spelling wrong. It's kind of a weird person to name your child after, but that is what she said. And, um, but anyway, that's a side note. Uh, it's a very random side note that you didn't need to know. Uh, but Ruth says, no, I'm not going to leave. I'm going to stay by your side. And she says that she clings to her. And Naomi, in her grief, says her, the Lord's hand has gone out against her. The message translates uh, verse 13 this way. God has dealt me a hard blow. So like taking a punch to the gut or a punch to the face. It's a hard blow. And we have been through times like that. Maybe it is like we have been in a boxing match and it feels almost as if God has reared up and punched us right in the face and we're knocked down. And some punches are knockout punches. And then some punches are like quick jabs to the ribs. And either way, we are worn out by it. And I have learned from experience... The hardest time to be kind is when we are worn out. Whether it be knockout punches, haymakers, or whether it just be over and over again, every day, the shots to the ribs until we get so worn out that it makes kindness difficult. And here is point two. Kindness is put to the test when we are tired. It's easy to be kind when everything is going well. It's when we've taken some blows, when we've had some shots to the rib or even a haymaker to the jaw, that kindness is hard. Naomi says that this has come by the hand of the Lord. When I first read this, I thought, come on, Naomi, don't blame God. But maybe Naomi has a bigger understanding of God's sovereignty than I do. She sees that God's hand is even in the hardest blows. And I think that's crucial, actually. We need to recognize that God God continues to be in our lives even when we go through difficult times. Point three is that God is sovereign even in the most difficult times. 
Some of you may be here this morning and you've been, you, not only have you been through those difficult times, but you're in it right now. And I just want to remind you of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty means that He is in control and He will not abandon us. In fact, He may actually be using those good, those difficult things for our good. I don't think Ruth and Naomi recognized it at the time, but all of this is leading to a point. And the point is actually found in the very last book, the very last verse in Ruth. The very last verse in Ruth says this, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. In other words, Ruth will be the grandma of David. And that might not mean a lot to us, but that would have meant a lot to the original readers. David was the Israelites' greatest king, and it is from Israel's, it is from David's line that the Messiah would come. In fact, the genealogy in Matthew reads this way: Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. There is only three women listed in the genealogy, and Ruth is one of them because she is a significant person. You see, God is still sovereign, even in the most difficult times. Let me, uh, I'm going to run out of time. Well, I'm going to skip that. I'll run. So here, so let me uh, get to the last verse we have today. Verse 14. And it says, At this they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah chose to turn back and go to Moab, but Ruth clung to her mother-in-law's side. The text does not say that Orpah did anything wrong, but it sure seems that Ruth chose the act of greater kindness, the act of greatest love. And here's my fourth point today, and this is a point that relates to kindness, kindness that makes ripples, and that is that a that a decision is kind when it is the most loving thing to do. Orpah made a decision based on sound logic, but Ruth made a decision based on what was the most loving thing to do. I've studied, a, uh, I, I wrote a uh, doctoral dissertation on discernment, and I studied uh, the Quakers who are Christians who have these practices for discernment that are uh, very helpful. And one of their tests for making decisions is what they call the test of greatest love. And they ask, is this the most loving thing to do? And this is what I think Ruth is doing here. She finds the way of greatest love. And that, I think, is important for us as well. That we, as we face decisions, if we are to be kind people... We seek to have the way of greatest love. This is what we see in the life of Ruth. She has undivided kindness. Orpah was kind as well. That's what the text tells us, at least in verse uh, 8. 
But when was dealt life's hardest blows, she left Naomi's side. Orpah, I would say, had divided kindness. She was kind when it was easy, and she was unkind when, it be, when she was dealt the hard blows of life. Ruth has integrity in her kindness. She is kind even in the most difficult of times. And I know that in my own life, I want to have a certain integrity to my kindness so that no matter whether it's a good time or a difficult time, no matter whether I'm tired out and the stresses of life are beating me down, whether I'm in the midst of grief and difficulty, no matter what it looks like, there is an integrity to my kindness so that it is a life of undivided kindness. That's really what we want. We want a life of undivided kindness. And so what about you? Do you have undivided kindness? I want you to think about that for a moment. Okay, so who likes Jenga? Anybody want to play me in Jenga? I'm just giving you a minute to think about this. No, I'm just kidding. This is a, has a point to all this. So this is a fun game. Uh, the game, oh, thank you. The game of Jenga, and uh, everybody know how to play Jenga? You got to pick these pieces out, and uh, as you do, you'll, uh, you're waiting for the, uh, you're, tr- you're trying to outlast the other person who is going to, whose tower is going to Uh, lasts the longest or who's going to knock down the tower is the loser and so you're going through here and you're you're looking for pieces that are loose and when you take a piece that is loose then you uh, place it on the top of the tower and uh, Dawson likes Jenga so we play and uh But I was thinking about Jenga as I was thinking about this sermon, and I was thinking, you know, sometimes when we take these blows in life, uh, you know, we can find weak spots. And uh, when we act out of, without gentleness and kindness, our lives actually get more unsteady. And, And eventually, our lives can uh, topple over. When I read verses uh, 8 and 9, it says, uh, May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husband and to me. May the Lord grant to each of you, uh, may the Lord grant each of you that you will find rest in the home of your husband. And I thought about that idea of rest because when I wrestled with kindness and gentleness this past week, it was during a period where I felt like I was not rested. And, uh, and in the midst of that, uh, that time of difficulty, I went to look for rest in all kinds of places. And I think a lot of us do sometimes. 
We look for rest in things like TV or internet. Just surf the web and we think that that's going to provide us from, for something that we need. And then, and then sometimes we turn to things that are not helpful, like we look for rest in food or alcohol. Or maybe we turn to escapes even like pornography or to calling up a friend and just gossiping and complaining. And there's all kinds of things that when we're tired and we're stressed out, we think that somehow this is going to provide us rest for our souls. But let me just say, all of these things are pulling blocks out of our lives that are actually making us weaker in the process. There is no rest that will make our lives strong in kindness that are found in these things outside of God. And so we just, but we just keep poking at it, and life keeps dealing its blows. And in response, as we get blown, uh, uh, as we get punches to ourselves, we want to punch back. And so, what do we punch back with? Well, we look to all of these other things, and in the midst of it, our lives just keep getting weaker. But what if we were to look for rest somewhere else? You see, now in Jenga. I'm not allowed to do this. I can't take a piece off the top and put it back. But the good news of life with God is that He allows us the opportunity to receive rest in His presence. And so I wonder if the block of prayer is a way that God restores our souls so that we can become kind people. And we look to the scriptures and we seek to meditate on God's word and somehow the, the stirring that is within our hearts gets restored and, and, and our base is getting strong so that when we are dealt the hard blows of life, that there is a foundation there that actually is strong enough that we will not topple over. We will not give in to unkindness in that moment. And we think of the fellowship that we have with our brothers and our sisters and we seek that out as a block for our lives and our lives are getting stronger. And we think about the accountability that we have with others. We think about coming together on Sunday morning to worship. And all of these things, God is restoring these blocks so that we become people of kindness, become people of Christ-like gentleness. You see, really what I long for in my life and what I hope that each of us longs for is an undivided life of kindness. But we've got a lot of holes in our lives sometimes, and it's because we're not looking to find our rest in the right places. We're looking for all of these other things and God comes and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. And so that's my encouragement for us. We come this morning and there may be burdens in our lives. Maybe it is one of those difficult weeks where you just go, I, 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 for crying out loud. 
And yet we come before God and we say, you know what, Lord, I'm not going to look to any of these other things. I'm here this morning because I recognize that you and you alone can do what is needed in my heart. In fact, as we turn to the Lord's Supper, this is an opportunity for us to recenter ourselves in the work and the grace of God. It's an opportunity to recognize that we cannot do this in ourselves, that we are dependent upon Jesus' broken body and his shed blood for us. And so we turn to his word and we turn to prayer, we turn to our brothers and our sisters around us, and we turn ultimately to the cross and we ask God for his grace. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward now and to prepare as we, uh, for us.